Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful. Kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, some of us went to a little town, a little Episcopal retreat site outside of Bryan College Station, actually outside of the suburb of Bryan College Station, Nacogdoches. No, not Nacogdoches. Navasota. That's what I get for trying to add letters. But anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, it was a wonderful conference. Uh, it was. We had a great time seeing good friends and colleagues. We we uh, had. S- worship and we did some business and um, and then uh, we came to the end of the conference and it was the um, time for the closing worship service where we would install our new conference minister Reverend Phil Hodson and as we were getting ready for that worship service I was kind of hanging out in the entryway and here comes the Friends Congregational Church UCC Choir oh Well, you know, that's where I served for seven plus years. And I know those people. I mean, there were friends of mine who I hadn't seen in months and months. And it was just rich to hug their necks and we we all got to talking and finally somebody said, we got to go, we've got rehearsal. (laughs) And, And so it was just an amazing interaction. As part of the worship service, they sang the most beautiful anthem called Oh Love by Elaine Hagenberg. I'd never heard it before, though I was very familiar with the hymn. Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It was written by George Matheson, who wrote it in 1882. The music was so beautiful and those singing it so close to my heart. But it was also the lyrics that captivated me. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in you. Oh, light that follows all my way, I yield my flickering torch to you. Oh, joy that seeks me through the pain, I cannot close my heart to you. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. I get chill bumps just hearing those words again. The words spoke to me of God, a God who is three in one, love, light, joy. And I was transported from that place to a place I cannot name. And tears fell from my eyes, even though the hymn says it, it'll be tearless be. <laughs> and in that moment, on that particular day, in that particular place, I entered a divine dance, a dance that all of us are invited into, that is alive in each of us here this morning, each of us online this morning, or who will worship with us later or in the days ahead. It is through this kind of connection to the triune God who shows us that God is with us, with you and with me, 
coming near, always coming near, always pouring God's self out, that we become the church alive. That is why I want to talk to you this morning about this ever-present relationship that is seeking us, that we in the Christian church call a triune God. In her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, Beth Allison Barr tells about a startling moment in worship. She writes this. If I had been holding coffee, I would have dropped it that Sunday morning. As it was, I almost fell out of my seat, which wouldn't have been a good thing since I was sitting in clear sight of the pastor. <laughs> but seriously, I had just heard him preach heresy. I'm not using the word heresy lightly. Throughout church history, what I had just heard come out of the mouth of our pastor had been declared heretical over and over and over again. Yet here was a 21st century evangelical pastor boldly stating that Jesus is eternally subordinate to God the Father. Now, I, I want to say something here about heresy. The word heresy that we tend to think of as sin, punishable by death, because that's what's happened to a lot of people in the history of the church, at least in the ancient world it has been so, actually means an opinion or doctrine at variance with the orthodox or accepted doctrines, especially of a church or religious system. When I was in my Christian history class at Perkins School of Theology, um, we had a good German theologian, his history professor, and he would start talking about that at this point in the Christian history of the church, people believe this and that and the other, and I would think, oh, that's, I, yes, I, I think that's good, I believe that. And then he said, and that was declared a heresy and such and such, such. So, I mean, it really is that Heresy is about people, oftentimes people whose voices are not allowed to be heard in the structure of the church, saying things that are different. Now, there are times in church history and in our own times where we need to be at odds with doctrine, the teachings of the church. I mean, think of women preachers. Think of slavery as acceptable. All of these have, in the history of the church, been doctrinally okay. And remember, doctrine is really about teaching, a teaching. Now, Barr went on to explain that the heresy that had been overturned was the one that had stated that Jesus was subordinate to God, Abba, Creator. In other words, she is referring to the Arian controversy, the Arian heresy, as it came to be known. In effect it would mean that the church was setting aside the doctrine of the Trinity that said that God, the God revealed in Jesus, the Christ, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit is three in one. You know, it's an interesting problem, isn't it? But one that was affirmed at its earliest by the Council of Nicaea in 325 of the Common Era. Now, it's interesting mathematically, isn't it? Three and one, one and three, and, and since math has never been my strong suit, let's move on. <laughs> that council gave us the Nicene Creed that in part stated, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, begotten of the Father, not made, light, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, consubstantial with God, which means the exact same essence of God, even if there's a different aspect. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are different aspects of God, but it's the same essence of God. Thus, the council sought to settle the question of the divine nature of Jesus. And if you're squirming a little about all this, it's okay. You don't have to... I mean, you can have all the questions you want about who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is and even who God is. So let me unpack this for us and hopefully explain why Beth Allison Barr nearly fell out of her chair. All the church councils and all the subsequent Christian theologians and all the church folk who have ever been, including all of us, have tried to find ways to speak about the mystery that is God in ways that we can grasp and understand. But all the words in all the world cannot contain God because God is a mystery and has many names and many faces. Now, our Christian understanding is that God, the God of our Jewish siblings, is one God. But the early followers of Jesus began to understand him as a true revelation of this one God. And at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, who was described in the Jewish sacred stories as present with God at the very beginning of all creation, was revealed to the people who were following Jesus as the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ, offers an idea of God as three persons in one essence. And all of that began to take shape in the minds and the hearts of the followers of Jesus. Now, you might ask at this point, okay, fine, let's stop the history lesson. Can we move on to something that actually relates to us? Well, let me see if I can help with that. So when we gather at the table that Jesus has invited us to, we are reminded that in the act of the table, the giving of his body, the pouring out of his life, Jesus showed us that everyone gets to come to the table. The poor, the outcast, the oppressed, women and children, widows and orphans, tax collectors, foreigners, and even Roman centurions. Everyone gets to come to the table. Unlike most tables of Jesus' day that only allowed certain people to dine, Forcing women and children to eat later, not allowing tax collectors, not allowing all these other people, the poor, the outcasts, who were thrown the leftovers after the meal. Jesus welcomed all to the table. In other words, hierarchy and the power and the wealth that come with that was not the model Jesus taught and not the God Jesus understood. Instead, Jesus showed us that God is a God who sees all people as created in God's own image and likeness and calls them heirs, you and me. Now, Father Richard Rohr, writing about the Holy Trinity, has a few words to say about this, as you might imagine. He says, the notion of God as Trinity is the foundation of all Christian thought, and yet it has never 
really been that. Our dualistic minds largely shelved the whole thing because we couldn't think outside this and that. We could only think dualistically. But God is three relations, which itself is mind-boggling for us. Yet that clarification opens up an honest notion of God as mystery, who can never be fully comprehended with our rational minds. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that everything is in relationship. Everything, all of creation, all of us. We're in relationship. Nothing stands alone. Now, I would break into singing the cheese stands alone at this point, but I'll spare you that. <laughs> there is no hierarchy with our God. Our God does not operate in hierarchy. And that is important because our world operates completely in hierarchy. And that results in some being on the top of the pyramid and everybody else falling underneath. The reason Barr almost fell out of her chair that Sunday morning, because as a religious historian, she knew that to subordinate Jesus was to then subordinate everybody else and everything else. It gives the church reason to subordinate women. And let me tell you, if women get subordinated, which they have for so long in the church, everybody else does. People of color, people with different, differing abilities, uh, people with different languages, I mean, people who are indigenous, people who are, are different sexually and different in their gender, all of everybody else falls below. And a small group of people who hold the hierarchy and the power and the wealth get to determine where people fall. Even creation is subordinated. So all of a sudden, creation is now not something we take care of, but something we have oppressed for centuries. The truth is that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But early Christians began to notice that in the sacred stories of our faith and the writings, that we see God show up in three ways, right? In the stories of Jesus' baptism, do you remember? In the stories of Jesus' baptism, Jesus, who is the physical presence of God, God's voice that is heard but not seen, and the descending dove, which is the, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. Well, in our readings today, we hear in the gospel reading all three names called. God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And in our first reading, we hear the same. God, Christ, and Spirit. So the early Christians began to put all this together and realize that there's something mystical happening here. And those early Christians sought to teach what they had learned. And what Paul learned was all about suffering and hope. Diana Butler Bass, in an exquisite story about hope, explains through an excerpt from her book A People's History of Christianity when she writes this. In April of 2008, Matthew Felling of WMAU Radio in Washington, D.C. interviewed Dr. Gordon Livingston, a psychiatrist 
who for more than 30 years had been studying human happiness. Felling asked the predictable question, what is it? What makes people happy? Livingston responded by listing three things, meaningful work, meaningful relationships, and a sense of hope for the future. The first two, in many ways, are self-explanatory, aren't they? But hope for the future? How do we get there? Especially today. And what Professor Livingston said was that we get there by having a realistic sense of history. Livingston said that and insisted that seeing the past on its own terms, not through a romantic gaze of nostalgia, is the intrinsic to human flourishing. In other words, to look back with honesty. Nostalgia, he declared, is the enemy of hope. It tricks people into believing their best days are past. Bass continues writing this. I am pleading that we all learn to recognize the difference between nostalgia and history. Because nostalgia, even friendly seemingly nostalgia, isn't really benign right now in either our politics or our religious communities. Gentle nostalgics give way under the stress of conflict and chaos. Indeed, nostalgia then becomes radicalized fear. It is pushing history out of the public square and replacing it with demagogic nationalism. A more realistic view of history opens up the more possibility of growth and change. Our best days are ahead, not behind. So I want to tell you my own story of how this happened to me and came for me to understand this. <clears throat> In 2012, um, my ministry had taken a bad turn. I'd been betrayed by my closest associates and was under personal attack by my church leadership. And not just me, but my beautiful wife was also being personally attacked. Now, mind you, I knew then and I know now that I'm not a perfect pastor by any means or a perfect person. I could have done many things better. I could do many things better today. <laughs> but this was an orchestrated, unrelenting effort to remove me from my elected leadership. It was during that time that I determined that we needed a worship team planning meeting for 2013 and arranged for about 12 of us to meet at the Episcopal Church of St. Thomas the Apostle. So during a break, I went and found myself in an empty sanctuary that was absolutely exquisite. The front of the sanctuary has a stained glass cross with beautiful hues of bright blue and green. And the right side of the sanctuary has stained glass windows of the, the disciples, the apostles. And the left side of the sanctuary is all glass. And while I was in that sanctuary by myself, I prayed out of my anguish, oh God, this is what I want. This is what I need. Just a small church where I can know all the people by name and love them, where I can serve you faithfully. This is what I need. Please help me. Because you see, I was serving a huge church and I knew a lot of people, but not so well. 
Earlier this year, I went to that same sanctuary to celebrate the installation of their rector, a close ministry colleague, that I had helped find his way into the Episcopal ordained ministry. As I sat through that exquisite worship service, I began to find my eyes turned toward the wall of windows and the courtyard, the beautiful courtyard beyond. And suddenly I was awash in a love that will not let me go, a light that follows me all my way, a joy that seeks me through the pain, as I realized that now, 10 years later, God answered my prayers. Because for the last nine years, I have been given exactly what I prayed for. And the place now where we worship is a whole side of windows looking out onto a beautiful courtyard. And so that is how we dance with the divine. When we open ourselves to the possibilities of God in our midst and a baby crying <laughs> because we have a baby. <laughs> and when we come together to dance with the divine, we discover that indeed we are the church alive. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.